Today's episode of Undesign comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders, past, present, and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Undesign. I'm your host Costa. Thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand we all have so much we can contribute to these challenges. So listen in and see where you fit into the solution as we go on to Undesign the concept of nationalism and identity. Now when we talk about the nation, what do we actually mean? As a physical concept, it refers to an entity that is defined both by its geographical boundaries and the people within them. Nationalism then, in its most basic form anyway, can be thought of as a way we internalize this sense of who we are based on what makes us different to everyone else. As an idea, it represents shared traumas, victories, and the character of a collective. It's powerful, it's attractive, but is it the only way we can feel connected to one another. If recent global events are anything to go by, we are truly seeing how the concept of the nation state and nationalism is a source of major unrest. For some, the nation state is the basis of efforts seeking to restore a sense of national pride and autonomy. We've seen huge events like Brexit and the storming of the Capitol Hill done in this in the name of nationalism. In Australia, we have evergreen arguments about citizenships and values tests, our migration policies, our treatment of our First Nations people, and even the wording of our national anthem. For others, the nation state is the biggest antagonist of historically oppressed groups, from Indigenous and First Nations people of settler colonial countries to minority communities of colour. Whichever way you split it, nationality feels like a bigger cornerstone of people's identity more than ever before. The nation-state model for modern civilization is one that we perhaps take for granted. So has the time come for us to revisit a big question? Is nationalism distorting our sense of identity? And how? Picking apart this question on today's episode is our esteemed guest, Associate Professor Dr. Farida Fosda. Farida is a distinguished sociologist with the University of Western Australia. and Her primary research focuses are on migration, race and ethnicity, refugee settlement, racism, nationalism, and cosmopolitanism. She has published widely with over 100 journal articles, chapters, books, and reports on these fundamental questions of how diverse communities and people form relationships with one another and themselves. From the way we live as organized societies to the relationships we form with others, and most importantly, the way we see ourselves, this is an idea of self that, if we untangle, also leaves a huge space to fill. So what do we put in its place and how do we do it? All right, Frida, thank you so much for joining us today uh, for our Undesigned podcast. Um, so the question we've put today as the, the central provocation for our discussion is this idea of, is the nation state obsolete? When I say that sentence, what comes to mind for you based on all the research and work you've been doing for all this time? Well, first of all, I love the question. So I think it's a, it's, it's a great thing for us to be discussing. And, and what my research has shown is that it is almost impossible for people to think 
beyond the nation state. Like we've become so used to the idea that that is the natural category um, which, which our identities are attached to for our kind of economic systems, for our political systems, etc., that we almost can't think beyond, beyond it. Um, and so I, I, I did some qualitative research across Australia where um, I was trying to trigger people to talk about the question of the nation versus kind of a, a more global citizen kind of idea or um, a sense of cosmopolitanism, a sense of our obligation to others kind of globally, etc. And I was trying to prompt them to talk about that stuff without actually asking them, mm. what do you think of the idea right, yeah. of a kind of a post-national it's world? when you get the most honest answers, right? Yeah. And, and so I thought, well, how do I get them to, you know, to talk about this stuff? So I used images, I used photographs to try to trigger them to talk about these things. So I had a, an image of um, the globe, a world, world map image. I had an image of um, somebody with two passports, you know, to suggest kind of dual citizenship. I had an image of um, the leader at the time was, was Kevin Rudd and right. um, the Chinese leader um, shaking hands. And I thought that might trigger people to talk about, you know, how the world is so much smaller and how we're orienting away from the US and Europe and more to kind yeah. of Asia and, you know... Um, I, I just thought it, you know, it might generate some some interesting um, discussion. And what did I it had generate? an image. Well, no, I, it, it's it, it, another image was an image of um, kind of smokestacks, you know, generating pollution, which is, you know, this, these are global risks, oh, right? Of course, yeah. So, so all of those images, you, you would imagine, oh yeah, that'll make people kind of talk about provocative, you know, our, our relationship with the world and the sense of the world becoming a smaller place and how, you know, we can travel and and you know no longer need to think of us so much in terms of nationalistic mm. kind of ideas. Mm. Now, nah. <laughs> right. short answer, people revert always to talking about themselves in terms of the nation state. Wow. So the picture of the world map, the immediate response in every single one of 27 focus groups was, we're so far away. And, and I think that's a really interesting kind of, well, away from, from what? what? Yeah. You know? and, and so obviously the orientation is still towards Europe. That's true. And the we is the we of the nation state. Yeah, you take on a secondary role almost by saying we are far away from Absolutely. that locus or, yeah. or like that, that locus of activity or whatever that is. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and what I found was so you know the the images that I had cleverly selected and thought were going mm. to generate an interesting discussion about a post national world and kind of cosmopolitanism didn't do that so we ended up actually having to ask the question so what do you think of an idea of a a borderless world a post national world um, and there was a particular interesting kind of pattern in the responses. So there were a few people in the focus groups, and these are, you know, groups of, you know, around sort of six to ten people who are all sitting around a table. They they know each other because they're all from different groups. Right. Um, cool. uh, and, and so you get this really interesting kind of dialogue between people. And so some people would say, oh, you know, that would be a good idea, or we're already in a post-national world because, you know, we can travel around the world and, you know, there are, there are like, New Zealanders, they can come and live in, in Australia. We have examples of political influence from, mm. from other countries um, kind of globally. We have uh, multinational companies uh, and, and so on. But every time that idea was raised, it was quashed by the other people in the group. Right. So people would step in and they would say, oh, well, you know, 
while the idea of a post-national world is is might be a great idea, um, it's a bit utopian. Okay, yes. it's it's not in it's not practical. We right. couldn't we couldn't do it. And the reason we couldn't do it is well, we've got to get the nation state right first. You know, mm. um, and that people are kind of naturally um, oriented to the nation state. That we've we we are a collective. So they couldn't kind of see beyond right. that idea of we being members of the nation. Just to state. rewind a bit, how old is this? idea of the nation state from from your vantage point i mean i I feel like that's a question that could have a lot of answers and like you know how do you even define nation state like because i you know in the preparation for this podcast i was thinking wow you know how do you define nation state and really like it's a mixture of geographic boundaries and some shared characteristics or traits of a people within those boundaries Mm. right how long has that idea been around from at, you know, from your vantage point. Mm. That's that's a great definition, actually. You've, right. you've given a, a very useful definition. And and we think of it as an ancient thing, but in fact it's only about 400 years old. It, it right. stems from, um, in, in Europe, there were ongoing religious wars, and when I say religious wars, I mean within Christian yes. sects, d- denominations of Christianity, and to put an end to those wars, um, a, tre- a treaty was signed, the Treaty of Westphalia, which kind of set up the, the structure and the rights of sovereign nation states. And so that was kind of the first time that you get this sort of coalescence of the idea of um, the people. The, prior to that, nation was almost synonymous with kind of ethnic group. Yes. So it, it had that kind of identity, we the people kind of element to it, um, together with the political side, the, the geographical borders and the, the right to rule within within that system. Um what I think is interesting, so so that's sort of only four hundred yeah, years which old. Which is just so it's, it's it's a blink of an that's eye. That's so strange to think about. Yeah, as only that recent. Yeah, yeah, but but you know it, it's it's now so ingrained that we can't think beyond it. And in fact, um, one of the um, sociologists some decades ago talked about the nation as an imagined community. So it's it's a, a community of people who think of themselves as a community, even though they've never met each other, mm. um, and they they feel that they have a, a sense of collective, and part of that is the potential of communication. Mm. So um, the idea that, that Anderson was talking about when, when he talked about them as a, a, an imagined community of nation states, as an imagined community, was that um, with the development of the printing press, um, there was the, an, an opportunity for um, governments to communicate with with people, for people to share information um, through through that particular means, and that means so it kind of defined the nation state. Right. Now you would think, well, now that's not how we communicate. You know, we yeah. communicate through the internet. We we have these amazing global technologies, which allow us to connect. And so you would think, well, that that should result in the crumbling of mm. of the nation state, and yet. And yet we, you know, we do maintain this this idea, and our political leadership more recently has, and we'll, we'll probably talk a bit more about yeah, this yeah, um, yeah. later, has has kind of pushed us back into thinking about ourselves. Um, we went through a phase where where we started to become kind of more global in consciousness, mm. and, and we've kind of reverted. We've back reverted, to yeah. That. Can I can I, I just, just one more thing I wanted to say about yeah. the kind of how how old is the nation state idea? Is that we have. 
incredible diversity in terms of, of what... So, so we, we all think we know what a nation-state is, but we have a nation-state as small as the Vatican City. Vatican City is a nation, right? It's a, it's a, it's a nation-state. Yeah, it's its right. own thing, right? Um, less than 1,000 citizens, okay, 75% of whom are clergy. So, you know, we, we've got that, and then we've got Russia. Mm. There are a couple of nation-states with over a billion um, really people. And it's the same yeah. with China. It's you know, the same China, with China. Yeah. massive diversity. Um, and, and so these are fictions. You know, you, when, when you think about that, you start to realise, oh, you know, there's, there's no real um, logical reason that the boundaries are set in these particular places yeah. and that, that the consciousness of the people should thus be constrained. Conf- yeah. yeah. That's, you know, you've just got me reflecting even, and this is before the Treaty of Westphalia by a long shot, I think of ancient Greece, you know, mm. my background, and not, well, my background's not ancient Greek. Well, actually, I should do a 23 and <laughs> and I'll find out. <laughs> I've always wanted to. But, um, and we'll get, and this is sort of the natural segue for me here, because the, the research you did back under the sort of the Rudd Prime Ministership really does feel like a time in our recent history where we had the most global outlook that I can remember Mm. for quite some time. Now, you know, things are quite different and people invoke the nation state in various, as you've rightly pointed out, even back then, we gravitate, we we hang a lot of our identities on this idea of what nation we belong to, whether that's geographic, you know, um, imagined or whatever it is. And... um, with, when I was thinking about Greece and there's this obsession, particularly with extremist movements, for example, um, there's an obsession with purity and going back and a reversion to a golden age and a reversion to how things were. And, you know, quite often the image of the Spartan or something like that is invoked or like the, the Olympian gods or something like that. Mm. Or, you know, actually more those legendary heroes like Leonidas and those historical figures, right? Um, they're invoked as like these ideals of... A particular value system but when you look into Greece's formation they were a series of ethnically diverse tribes that mm. coalesced into the sort of the Hellenic people you know so this idea of purity is something that recurs particularly when there's economic strife and mm. so based on the research you did all those number of years ago and you put that on the current context where we've had um you know uh, some people have called an insurgency or an insurrection on the capital mm-hmm. and the tra- you know the change in presidency in the US how do you reflect on those just how do you reflect on the research now knowing what you extracted from those results there and applying it to the current context how do we get from one place to here in such a short amount of time so i'm i'm not a political scientist but i'm interested in in, sure. in politics yes. insofar as the political rhetoric, mm. so the language yep. and, you know, the sorts of speeches that our political leaders give and the ways in which they influence and the sorts of permissions that they give yes. to the more extreme fringes of uh, the general the general population. So, yeah, we, we had Rudd. I, I totally agree with you in terms right. of our kind of outward-looking focus under yeah. under Rudd. This was a, a, you know, prime minister who could who could speak um, an, an Asian language. Yeah. It was very un, unusual, et cetera. And you can contrast him with with 
our current um, Prime Minister. And in fact, um, T- Tony Abbott was was right. quite different as well. Yes. You know, he, we did some some research looking at Tony Abbott, who, among other things, you know, talked about Team Australia. That you you know you don't yeah, come to Australia without wanting to be on Team Team Australia. Team Australia. So so that's uh, you know kind of ties in a little bit to this kind of idea of of purity mm. and that we all know who belongs to Team Australia, what the characteristics of yeah, those people right. are and who doesn't belong, who What's is excluded by, mm. by that term. And he doesn't need to say anything more. He can just use that idea and everybody immediately kind of mm. knows knows what he's talking about. We had Obama who was much more kind of outwardly focused and, and more kind of cosmopolitan. You look at his own kind of racial background sure. as, as well. So here is an example of a, a global citizen. Mm. And then we have, you know, followed by 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 Trump. Trump yeah. So so it's almost like there's a pendulum swing, and and part of me thinks this is that it's like the death throes of, right. of the nation state. Okay, that the nation state is kind of trying to reassert itself. Yeah. Under under material conditions and I- ideological conditions mm. that say no, nah, this is just not going to work. This is not relevant. This is an ac- an anachronistic yes. kind of political structure, right. and the people. And and it's not to say that people are, are sheep, and, and we know that there are you know great kind of grassroots uh, movements etc. Et, mm. et but the people do tend to take their lead from the political leaders. Yes. Um, and as you were talking mm. about that, I, I I just pulled up. Something which mm. which was was striking to me. It's 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 the speech that um, Scott Morrison made when he was bringing in the right at the sort of the, the start of, of COVID, um, and you know they brought in a whole bunch of legislation to set up job um, job keeper and job seeker and so yeah. on. Um, at the same time, they um, you know they they changed a lot of uh, uh, structures that that would have been kind of traditional. They they nationalised the the health system. Yes. Um, they they poured a whole lot of kind of money in into to the economy to support people, etc., and and just in in uh, that the sort of the little speech that that he gave to bring that legislation in, he talked about he used the word Australia and Australians okay. thirty seven times, right. and he used the word sovereignty nine mm. times, which is really interesting. Can I give you a little Please. snippet? Yeah, yeah, of, I was just about that? to ask. So so he says today we act to protect Australia's sovereignty. Now how how is that what he's doing? What's it got to do with sovereignty when he's talking about protecting Australians from a bug? Right. What's it, you know so so what what links is he making here? Mm. So today we act to, to protect Australian sovereignty. When Australian lives and livelihoods are threatened, when they are under attack, our nation's sovereignty is put at risk and we, we must respond. Our sovereignty is measured in our capacity and freedom to live our lives as we choose in a free, open and democratic society while, you know, while right. people are being shut into their homes and yes. so on. It's, it's, it, it, it's just this weird statement. So he's using, as these politicians do, yes. he's just using it as an opportunity for this kind of particular dog whistling to a particular set of constituents, yeah. um, nation under risk rather than individuals right. at risk. Yes. Okay, So he's using the nation yeah. in a context which is, you know, it's, it's about the well, threat that we face from It's an from objective a, threat, more or less, yes. as in like it's not a ideological threat. I mean, some people would argue that it is, and yeah. this, that's a whole other discussion. But you're right, like this is... It's literally a virus. That's you know, right, but a, but he's turning it into a, a national threat. Like it's it's very and you know I I could could go. Why go do you think on that narrative is so seductive for leaders? Uh, well, it's seductive for them because if you think of the you know think of the alternative. If we do move to 
And I keep using the, the term post-national and cosmopolitan as yes. interchangeable, but I do want to distinguish yeah, between please. the two. Yep. So post-national kind of just means... It doesn't mean anti-national, but it means moving kind of beyond the the nation state to other right. sorts of political formation. Okay. Cosmopolitan has more of a normative kind of element to it, so yes. a recognition that we, we, we share an obligation with our fellow humans. Right. So our obligation is not just to those people who kind of live within the nation state, it's to, it's to all people it's so to, as, as humans. Is your dis- point of distinction there that cosmopolitanism really is about an outlook on humanity and our sort of mm. people yep. and how what what differences mean within that broad collection of humanity, whereas post-nation or post-nationhood or person yeah, mm. post-nationhood if we call it that. Yeah. Is more about looking at different ways to yeah. see ourselves in yeah, and and, and and ways to kind of govern And to govern actually organise around yeah, yeah, as yeah. a society. So it's kind of less normative. And, and you know, cosmopolitanism might attach to post-nationalism, but I think it's kind of a useful a useful distinction mm. um, um, to, to have. Um, so now I have to try to remember why I was talking <laughs> about the distinction between... Cosmopolitanism. Um, cosmopolitanism and, and post-nationalism. Um, and it was in relation to your question about... Why, why this language is so why seductive? Why this language is so seductive? Um, if you if you think about the idea of the post nation, that means that these politicians will be out of a job. Yeah, and that you know, so, so there is a very personal interest in maintaining nationalism and maintaining um, a, a, a voting constituency yeah. who believes that that is the logical structure for governance. Okay, so so we're never going to get our politicians leading us right. into the post nation. Mm. Um, although you know, having said that, I, I want to contradict myself and say well, you know we have the European U- Union. Yeah. Um, we, there's the, the African Union as well, who's yes. kind of and, and you know so so there are these sorts of movements around the, the world. In that same oh sorry, mm. I don't mean to interrupt. No no, but but just just to say that that you have to have politicians who can kind of see see beyond their own personal interests in yes. maintaining the nation state as you know their their little sovereign region yeah. that they run that, that they're in charge of. Because you're really government. seeing. I mean, if we look at just recent events, you know, where we're seeing a crumbling of that again and people wanting to, people or groups of people wanting to claim their own sort of collective sovereignty, however defined, because it's hard sometimes to distinguish between sovereignty and nationhood, right? You know, as an example, Brexit, as Mm. one example of breaking away from the European Union, um, you know, various ethnic conflicts within, um, you know, the greater sort of Russia um, boundary, nation, mm. you know, um, lots of fragmenting sort of and secessionist groups. Yes. You know, people wanting to, I, I don't know if this is the right read, but like I'm getting the sense that people want to become smaller again in some ways or just to yeah. be more contained or to have those boundaries more confined. I feel like even some of that dialogue has been at play with the national response to COVID terms of West Australia being, you know, isolationist. And, you know, that's kind of in our state character, I think, just by virtue mm. of being the isolated city in the world where we do tend to think of ourselves as more independent, but it's almost being turned into this team sport kind of mm. rhetoric where it's like West Australians, the secessionists, the ones that never play along versus the rest of the Australia. Um, and then even then you've got sovereign citizens movements. Mm. Again, another thing that is coalesced with extremism in recent years or 
recent years in Australia, I should say. Actually, even then, that's probably not accurate. But it's just we're seeing more of it. But at the same time, the argument has been made that things like the European Union and the African uh, Union uh, are ways of giving countries enough appearance of sovereignty whilst actually being mechanisms of controlling and like consolidating mm-hmm. power for for an elite few. So there's always this sure. interplay between the elite few and yeah. the rest of us. Yeah. And you know, some have even argued that the what the European Union is is a kind of an externalizing of national borders. Yes. So that the responsibility to control the movements of people has just been kind of Ceded mm. to to this kind of larger collective, yeah. so the individual nation state doesn't have to worry about it. Yes. So it's still exclusionary. It's still about yeah, keeping people right. out. So it, it's kind of an interesting ph- phenomenon. And you know, you, you mentioned um, Western Australia. Yeah. Uh, the, the, there's a new political party now in WA, mm. which is a secessionist party. You know, and I, you, you, you wouldn't think. Wait, there's a formal political. Yeah, party yeah. Now? It was on the news a couple of nights ago. Um, oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I'll be watching it's, that closely. It's, ast- it's astonishing. Um, and and uh, so just a, a personal anecdote that when I was, was doing my PhD, I w- we were living in um, New Zealand, and I realised I was talking at cross-purposes with some of my PhD buddies. So, right. so you know, we, we would talk about all, all sorts of interesting stuff related to what they were studying or what I was studying. Um and I realised that th- there was sort of a mismatch between between what what we were, what our visions of the future were. So I said, right. I, I asked them, "What do you guys think the world is going to look like in a hundred years?" And they all imagined what you've just described—a world of smaller and smaller units mm. of homogenous people so so that people would kind of self-select into right. smaller and smaller communities of like-minded people of people who you know were, were similar in in kind of various ways whereas my vision and and I, I fully recognize that that's because of my mixed you know I've, I've got this sort of oh, weird, sure. weird mixed background yep. where I'm you know uh, come from a, a mixed uh, mixed marriage an yep. Indian American was raised in a particular religion in another country and and then grew up for part yeah, of my of life course. in Australia. So I have all these kind of connections around around the world. So I see myself as one of these kind of global cosmopolitan citizens yes. and don't feel a strong affinity with the, the nation state. And so my vision of what the world would be like in 100 years was that the nation state, yes, would have, have, um, would have crumbled, right. but not to produce these kind of smaller like micro entities, micro-states. And the danger of that is that the, the vision is one of, of similar people. Yeah. So basically that's conceding that we can't live together mm. with difference. When we have so many... So much evidence to the contrary, right? Mm, absolutely. I mean, what are the alternatives then? Like we talk about sort of thinking beyond the nation state. I think the natural question people have, or well, what are the alternatives? What What do you see as the ways that the different ways that we can live together? Or what are there any examples that really stick out to you as something to pay attention to, or noteworthy, or just something to consider? 
Well, I, you know, I think the European Union is is an interesting example. I've also, you know, the, the United Nations gets a lot of bagging, yeah. um, but when you actually see them in action, mm. it's it's quite inspiring right. the ways in which people come together to try to solve the world's problems. And you know, the, the UN and, and all its its um, you know the, yeah, the various organisations yes. associated. Oh, it's a monolith with like, it. it. Yeah, yeah, no, it, but it's, it's a monolith it's with like all these like it's yeah. you know a but hydra. The problem with the United Nations is that it's the United Nations. Yeah. Okay. So it's still um, giving power to the the notion of the nation. I guess the United state. Sovereign doesn't have yeah. the United <laughs> Sovereigns. A United People. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, that's a really good. I never really thought of that. Yeah. And and but so then when when you move away from that and you talk about our you know global governance or world world government or something mm. like that. People get very nervous yeah. with ideas like that because they see it as um, it's a recurring feature in a lot of experience, uh, conspiracy it, theories. It, it, yeah. Yes, conspiracy theories and kind of you know sci-fi you know movies and and so on. So so it's it's seen as something fundamentally dangerous, and, and I think that's really interesting. If the state is not, see, you know, the current nation state is not seen as dangerous in that sort of way, why, if we imagine that on a global scale, does it suddenly become kind of menacing? Is it because that's kind of the only option? But, yeah. you know, then there are there are ways in which to ensure that you've got kind of um, democratic processes for, for representation, et cetera. There, there are ways of, of doing that, particularly yeah. with, with developments in, in technology, sure. um, et cetera. So it's interesting that we have this kind of frightened kind reaction. Kind of collective neuroses the, around yes, it, hey? Yeah. And again, you know, is that because we simply cannot think outside the nation state? Mm. But we don't have any trouble thinking, like, for example, of, of a federated system. Yes. So, so, you know, many nations have their own system of states, et cetera, internally. Mm. There's no suggestion that people should be blocked from movements internally. Right. So why do we think that it's so natural that we should block people from from moving between one country and, and another. I guess because as soon as you say something like a border, like you talk about anything that implies a border, you don't think of it as a – well, you think uh, it can be framed as a preservation thing at, as well as a simultaneously an exclusion thing too. So perhaps yeah. there's that false kind of – well, not false, understandable, but not necessarily true – thing that follows that with boundaries comes control and restrictions. Mm, yeah, that's and there's yeah. seems to and you know if if you look at even the rhetoric of a lot of uh sort of extremist movements at the moment mm. there's real fixation with not wanting to be controlled. Yes. You know, and we're seeing you know much more visibility on sort of libertarian views, extremist movements um that talk about this idea of not being controlled by these big shadowy entities. Um for me, there's a real tension between this idea of not wanting to be controlled and actually like collaborating with people and seeing it as actually mm. you can have well-drawn parameters of who you are and who you are as a collective, not at the exclusion of other people. Is that a fair mm. observation? Yeah, and and I think, you know, if we're, we're talking about borders, again, 
A lot of the restrictions are kind of arbitrary. So if you look at, for example, Australia's um, border regime, which yeah. you know we, we've seen an incu- increasing kind of securitization of, mm. of our borders and desire to, to kind of keep people out and define who belongs kind of in, in internally, and maybe we can have a bit of a chat about yeah. the kind of the values, the values. I want to talk about and, values, and, yeah, and that sort of stuff. But if you if you actually think about the um, the rules for who can come in to Australia and who can't, they're really quite arbitrary. So, right. you know, there are rules. If, if you have a, a, enough money, yes. you can basically get a visa to, to you know, a business visa surprise, to, surprise. to work in Australia. <laughs> yeah. So, and I always find it a bit ironic when people criticise asylum seekers for being kind of cashed up, that, oh, you know, they're, yeah. they're able to buy their, their way on a boat to yep. Australia, et cetera. And I think, well, you know, that's built into the Australian migration that system. Is... It's just that they don't have enough money yes. to come through mm. through those those means. We have an open border policy, more or less, with yep. with New Zealand. Yes. Now, you know, why New Zealand but not Papua New Guinea? And in right. fact, you know, Papua mm. New Guinea actually kind of pointed that out recently and said, well, you know, why, why is it that our seasonal fruit pickers yeah. have to go through all these rigmaroles and, and, you know, promise that they're going to go back home afterwards right. when New Zealanders kind of don't? And there you see how, you know, the white Australia policy is still yeah, kind that of rears visible. Its head. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't even talked about it, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Yet. We'll no, no, and yeah, we, that's that's yeah, a sort of a, a special case yeah. where arguments around moving beyond the nation state mm. um, become be, become problematic. Yes. And you know, uh, there are political scientists who argue that the only way to ensure that people have rights is is through the nation state because that's the current structure within which people so, – so you might have an idea that, yeah, there are human rights that sure. are inalienable and, you know, belong to everybody in the world, but how do you enforce those? There is no international body that is able to enforce those. It is only through the nation state that those are able to be enforced. So that's an argument kind of for the That's the very nation, carefully worded though, isn't it? Because state. it's not saying we have to identify as people like – to a nation state in no. order to be who we think we are or to to coexist, right? Like mm. the nation state is responsible for the enforcement of yes. rights. Yes. But it's not saying the only way to have a nation state is to identify with it, like a, as part of our – like I guess there seems to be a missing link with what that means culturally and how people yes. actually – live in the everyday world and yeah. sociologically, like, what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, th- there is this distinction between kind of ethnic nationalism and civic nationalism. Right. And so, you know, theorists have, have argued that we've been moving towards kind of more, more civic nationalism, which is a nationalism based on... Um, um, kind of pride in the sense in in the structure of our political system and a sense of obligation to to that and allegiance to the the political system yes um, as opposed to allegiance to a particular kind of people as as a single kind of ethnic ethnic kind of group mm. um, but but sort of getting back to what you were saying about about indigenous people so so the argument that the nation state is the entity which can um, Enforce, protect protect, protect yep. the the rights of indigenous people for example is a reasonable kind of argument sure. on the other hand you can say well it's the it's also fraud it's the nation state that caused the problems in the put like if you take yes. australia the us canada and new zealand where it is these are colonial settler mm. nation states yeah. it's that, that that nation state is the reason that the people have been yeah, oppressed. The indigenous so, uh, people yeah, have, exactly. been, have been oppressed. Are in the current situation. So it's kind of um, 
Yeah, I, I don't see the nation state as any guarantee mm. that Indigenous people's rights will be prote protected, but there must be ways within a kind of a, a more global perspective to ensure that the rights of of people who, for example, the Australian Indigenous people who have yeah. been here for over 60,000 years, yeah. that their rights are kind of given a priority. So yes, everybody has, has a set of rights, sure. but you know, these guys were here first. Man, 60,000 years compared to 400. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like I, I, I admit I have a lot of work to do in terms of learning about um, like our true Australian history mm -hmm. and like, you know, pre-1700s mm. or even before that. Well, as much as you can learn about 60,000 years with mm. the current information we've got. Um, but it sounds like we could seek to learn a lot from how Indigenous groups like organised before we even got here, you know, because, you know, how I'm not sure what the number is of how many language groups existed in Australia before we started to colonise. Yeah, I'm not sure, but it's, but it's in the hundreds, hundreds yeah, right? Yeah. You know, to me that says, oh, well, that's interesting because, you know, maybe in common parlance we'd call them little nations or we would just yes. call them groups that just lived side by side. Because um, I know you did a lot of study. Did you study the New Zealand context in terms of with Maori people and yeah, I, how that I, I was yeah. I, um, we happened to be living in New Zealand yes. when, when I did my PhD there, mm. and and so yeah, I, I know a little bit about the right. The, the is Maori there a, is, are they analogous in any way in terms of um, how you know Maori groups sort of organised and then mm. you know how that changed? With I know New Zealand has different, uh, probably a bit more advanced in that conversation in terms of yeah. acknowledging First Nation rights, but. Um, are there any lessons for us from that oh, example? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But but there yeah, there are fundamental differences. Right. So in terms of the lifestyles yeah. of the the people before colonization, yes. um, while there is now quite a bit of evidence that that Indigenous Australians were not simply hunters and gatherers, right. that, that they did actually farm, etc. Sure. The um, Maori were were much more kind of stable in terms of you know, having established kind of um, farm, farm right. farming and, and so on. Yep. Um, and there were, yeah, the, the, the one of the fundamental differences is that a treaty was signed yes. in New Zealand. So there was there were there was a war and a treaty was signed. Now there are all sorts of problems with the treaty. For yeah. example, the, the Maori language version is different from the English language version. So oh. so they, they were signing different things. I wonder what international <laughs> legal scholars have to <laughs> say, about say about that. <laughs> yeah. But but regardless yeah. and, and so so there is yeah argument about the the meaning of, of some of the terms that right. were used, etc. And, and sort of the seeding of sovereignty and yeah. what, what sovereignty meant in the different languages mm. and so on. Um, but it, it set up a, a, a legal foundation from which Māori have been able to argue for certain rights. And, right. and the result of that um, can be seen in, in some of the political systems, mm. you know, sort of dedicated seats in parliament, etc., um, parallel justice systems, parallel education systems, etc. Right. Um, but also can be seen in... Um, the 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 kind of the not not the sense of pride because of course indigenous peoples have a sense of pride here in Australia as well. Yeah, of course. But the, the the in in New Zealand that they were kind of starting from from a, a footing ahead right. because of that treaty. It was elevated. Their their sort of standing was elevated. Yes, yeah, and and so in terms of their kind of personal mm. senses of of who they are, yeah. they weren't kind of completely trampled on yes. in, in the way that, that Australian um, right. Indigenous peoples were. And so... Um, kind of speaks to your earlier point about um, 
the idea that the nation state possibly is the way to protect rights whilst not necessarily trampling over no. people's cultural, ethnic sort of origins or yeah. affiliations. Yeah. Well, so to uh, me... To, to, on, a, on a continuum of like perfect to imperfect. Sure. A bit further along than us, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all all you need to agree with is that there needs to be some sort of political structure that will recognise those Indigenous people. Now, yes. whether that political structure sure. is at the nation-state level or the city-state level yeah, or the right. um, international level, you need some sort of political structure yes. that will, will recognise those rights and enforce them. And that's at once representative but not too in, too, yes. too, too invested or too... too uh, people have too many personal... Oh. Yeah, that's also an interesting tension where you want something to be representative, which means you probably have a personal interest in the outcome without being too personally invested in yes, it, right? Yes, yeah, that's so right. That's always a tension. I think that's a tension in every yeah. sort of political system or any sort of formal system you mm. design. So, I mean, I guess we'll just circle back to the sort of the citizenship mm. test and just this mm. idea of Australian values. Um, it's funny, that, and I agree with you in that, you hear things like Team Australia, Australian values, citizenship test, and there is this deeply ingrained understanding of what that really means. Mm. I don't know. I, I'm just going to invite your thoughts on it because I, I have so many questions and none at all in, in, in on that one. Mm. But where are we at in that sort of conversation right now? Like what? I don't know. It just it generates a lot of feelings for me that I just really feel uncomfortable with. Mm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. And I... You know, I, I just read out the the little um, paragraph or part of a paragraph from from Morrison talking in in the COVID context, yeah. and when the um, the acting minister for kind of multiculturalism um, and migration, um, Minister Tudge, Alan Tudge, oh, yep. when he announced that he was bringing in changes to the citizenship test yep. to to include more values questions mm. and a change to the value statement, which is a statement not just that citizen people who want to become citizens must sign, but it's a statement that any migrant to Australia has to sign. Um, he framed it in terms of COVID again. So it, it's it's bizarre. So he, he hmm. praised the... Um, the multicultural communities within Australia for their response to COVID, you know, right. for, for looking after their people and, you know, helping Anyone out in, in, a, in, a, yeah. Yeah, in a range of different <laughs> ways and actually yeah. kind of, you know, gave some examples, et cetera. And then somehow segued into the fact that we therefore need stronger commitment to Australian, Australian values. Like, values. very, very bizarre. Um, when you look at the well, the citizenship, uh, sorry, the um, uh, value statement is is interesting in in itself. Um, it identifies um, certain Australian values, um, including uh, respect for freedom and dignity of the okay. individual, freedom of religion, commitment to the rule of law, right. parliamentary democracy, equality of men and women, a spirit of egalitarianism um, that embraces mutual respect, tolerance, fair play, and compassion for those in need, and pursuit of the public good. Um, Australian society values equality of opportunity for individuals regardless of their religion or ethnic background and English is the national language. So, you know, and uh, so 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 that's a set of values that sure. are identified in the Australian values statement. And on the first statement. reading of that, they don't sound particularly controversial. No, they don't sound... So, so I think what's interesting about these values is that they're basically kind of cosmopolitan values, but right. they're being recruited for nationalist ends. Oh, okay? I've never seen that before. Yeah, yeah, mm, no, that's right. <laughs> They're Australian values, Costa. Yeah. 
Um, uh, um, Nick Haslam, who's a, a social psychologist, has actually done a study of um, well, he's, he's compared national values across 80 countries. Okay. 80 oh, different countries, yeah. Um, there's there's a, a well-known kind of values test, the, the Schwartz values um, test and right. and measure. And, um, yeah, so, so you can compare across 80 different countries. And what he found about Australian values is that they are the second least distinctive of all those 80 countries. Wow. So we are t- completely average right. in terms of our values. So to call anything Australian values is a bit of a joke, really, because wow. these are values that are actually shared across 80 plus you, you, countries. You, you, but so you so that so that sure. that Australian values statement, okay, so that was the old one. That's not the new one right. that Tudge was oh, was, sure. was talking about Tarty. bringing in, which has slight modifications, which okay. I'll, I'll just talk about briefly in a second. Yep. But so that earlier one, I, I included questions about that in a survey that that um, that I did, um, and about ninety percent of the the respondents said that they agreed that yep. Those those are Australian values. So this statement reflects Australian values. Mm. About eighty percent agreed that migrants should have to sign the value statement. Yep. So there's there's overwhelming okay. support for the idea of a value right. statement. Fifty percent think that migrants should be deported if they breach those values. Not laws. These are not laws. These are yeah, these are sure. values. Which, okay. Yeah, are not. So so half half of the population thinks that we should send migrants home if they don't abide by the values. But then, then I, I kind of – I was, you know, mucking around with, with um, the ideas a little bit. So usually the, the next question you would ask would be, do you think Mos- Muslims um, uh, mm. share these values, okay? Because that's who these values are kind right. of directed against often. Yeah, when, when, of the, when the idea of Australian values is used Especially in political when deportation comes into rhetoric the conversation. and deportation comes into the conversation, you know who the target yep. group is. So I didn't ask a question right. about Muslims. I asked whether people thought that members of the Catholic Church mm. hold these values. And interestingly, only 34% of, the, right. of, of the, the respondents said that they thought the Catholic Church. So it's interesting that people can actually recognise that even though, you know, in a general sense, yeah, they like the, this idea of values, that there are sections of the population that don't espouse yes. those, those values. I mean, my question is just like, what if a non-migrant, however defined, exactly. breaches those values? Yeah, I should have asked that as, <laughs> yeah. as, as a question. Yeah. What, what about do you send non, them? What about, yeah, non-migrants? Jail? Yeah. But uh, interestingly, I also asked, um, should Australians adapt to these values if if migrants can improve them? So if migrants, oh, you know, could bring us some, some a new set of values yeah. which, you know, would, would improve yeah, these. that we all like. Do you, yeah. And 49% agreed with that statement. So, so, so you get this... <sighs> There's this sort of contradiction yeah. in people's attitudes, right? That they they like the the rah rah, yeah, mm. Australia's great. You know, these are our values, and anyone who doesn't stick by them, you know, we're going to throw them out. But they also ha- have enough have internalised enough of Australia's multicultural ethos to recognise that. Uh, but you know, also migrants might bring something of value to yes. us, and that you know, it it 
it could be a, a positive Seeing thing. Seeing it more as an exchange rather than yeah, a trade-off, right? Exactly, which is, you know, the whole idea of what integration as opposed to assimilation mm. actually is. Right. Um, the change that – so so th there are a few changes that have been brought in um, as, as a result of, of Tudge – or that are being brought in as a result yes. of, of um, Tudge's statement. And the main one is that um, – Rather than simply being asked whether they, um, yeah, that, that they will respect those values, people now have to sign up saying that they will conduct themselves in accordance with these values. Right. Now, how do you conduct yourself in accordance with values as opposed to accordance with laws? Mm. And who's going to well, police? Who's the judge? Yeah, who's going to police it and who's going to judge it if people are not demonstrating equality of men and women? Mm. I mean, does that mean that we can? Take to because court, as soon as it exactly, you know, then that the, becomes the, a law. The, multi, the, the companies that you know are paying women eighty percent of the salary of of, of men, mm. you know, who who yeah. So so it's again, it's this sort of dog whistling conservatism yeah. and and um, all in the name of, of kind of nationalism. And it really just hits home that tension between control and collaboration, right? Like Indeed. that for me is a really salient theme where it just comes out with I don't want to be told what to do or mm. how to do things um, and you know these are my boundaries and the people like me have the same outlook as mm. me whereas you know the reality is in a place like Australia like I really think of Australia p potentially more than most countries like we have the potential to be a microcosm of the world as it is Absolutely. Um, I guess in your view like because this is a pretty I mean, this has been a really thought-provoking conversation, but what do we do with this information? So I, I think, I mean, that's a really good question, and of mm. course, that's you know, that's yeah. that's where we have to start, right? Right. Um, so two immediately things kind of come to mind. One is to try to recognise where we are being manipulated in right. terms of the the way we're thinking. So when we hear, you know, government officials talking in terms of, of the nation state. Especially in terms of COVID. In terms of, of COVID, et cetera, in terms of Australian values, in terms of Team Australia. R recognise that for what it is, okay? Um, and you can still have... I mean, th there's some, some other interesting research which which demonstrates that, that most Australians, part of their nationalistic pride is around multiculturalism. Yeah. So our sense of Australia as a great nation, part of that sits on this idea that we're a great nation because we have diversity, because we've allowed, um, you know, many, many migrants from many different backgrounds, yep. um, because we have supported people in um, in living that diversity kind of within within the community, etc. So, so recognise that exclusionary nationalism for what it is and lean in towards the, the multicultural kind right. of version of nationalism as a step on the road to to being able to think kind of beyond the nation state as the crucible right. within which we have to, um, you know, think about ourselves in terms of our identity, in which we kind of govern our, ourselves, mm -hmm. etc. And then kind of part of that is also that there is a whole lot of research that demonstrates that cross-cultural interactions, that, that friendships between majorities and minorities, that interpersonal friendships are the way to break down prejudices and, and kind of barriers yep. to, to move away from discriminatory um, action. Right. 
And so, again, if, if everybody in their individual lives can think about ways in which they could make that step towards engaging with the other, you know, we, we in, in sociological theory use the idea of the other with a capital O yes. as, you know, the, um, a, a, a general category of person who we think of as fundamentally different, different from us, who doesn't deserve the same rights as us, who should be kept outside yes. kind of our circle. Right. So trying to in, engage with those people, prejudices drop away. So, so mm. the, the literature demonstrates that... Um, people who come to a relationship like that with certain sets of, of um, stereotypes yes. and, and preconceived Can ideas. Can I throw in just because mm. I agree fundamentally. I just want to throw in a provocation here as just a, a challenging thought to see how you would navigate this. And I think this is where the role of social media becomes mm-hmm. really important to consider. Um, so we see a lot of people on social media get in trouble for things they've written in the past, right, mm. where they've invoked racial or homophobic slurs, uh, you know, they, they're at a point in their life where they've been, you know, quite young, maybe looking to not really understanding the history or meaning of those words they're using. And what you'll often hear from a segment of those people is, oh, I grew up around black friends, I can say that. Yeah. I grew up around gay friends, I can say that. Mm. So arguably they've, negoti- they've embraced that in their own lives but have failed to sort of... Is there a responsibility to now, is the extra challenge with social media... Or just more visibility. It's not even just social media. That represents more visibility, I would say. Is there a challenge then in how, what sense we make of that? Or like, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, yeah, they would argue that they've tried to do that. Yeah. And now they're being punished for it mm. because um, people are in, imposing their standards on that person and they're not necessarily seeing their responsibility from a private setting to a public setting where in a private setting you can negotiate the meaning of mm, those words right. where, the, where the interactions between friends are possibly more mm. equal or yeah. whatever it is. How do you embrace that responsibly, I guess, is what yeah. I would say. Well, I guess, you know, th- there's a number of things there. One, one is that um, discourse analysts have demonstrated that, um, you know, some of my best friends are black but mm. is, a, is a very common kind of phrase that right. gets used yep. to justify the critical thing that is going to be said. So you need to be careful that yep. anybody who's using that argument sure. is not just using it in that rhetorical kind of sense yep. to justify what, what they're saying, to get away with basically, yep. to get away with, mm, with, mm, um, mm, with what, of course. what they're saying. Um, so I mean more on the good faith type stuff where yeah. people are like, oh, but like, my friends say it's okay. Yeah. Therefore, why is it not okay for everyone else? Yeah. Yeah. And and that that then is is simply about um, having having open dialogues. Right. Um, and this is again the sort of the anti racism li- literature um, does demonstrate that that sharing openly, developing a sense of kind of empathy, and and you know we have this sort of cancel culture, cancel culture. thing. Yeah, you it's know, a big where, discussion. Where you can't. Yeah. Um, you're kind of shut off from actually engaging mm. in in these, you know, and, and they're difficult. They're really difficult conversations. You know, yeah. like I, I often think um, we talk about multiculturalism yeah. in, in Australia, but often what we're demonstrating is multiracialism. Okay, yes. so so you know, yeah, I've, right. I've got some some Asian looking friends, etc. So long as they're culturally the same as as me, that's that, that, that's it's the fine. diversity of yeah. what that's Ex- exactly. Yeah, and and culture is actually that really, you know, we talk about the cultural iceberg and, mm. and you know, the, the tip of the iceberg is the things that we see. So it's it's visible di- 
difference. And Generally, it's, the unchanging it's, things, right? Yeah, and and food, and mm. you know, language, and and so on. Mm. But below is this, you know, the fundamental differences in ways of being in the world, differences of values, etc. And it's that stuff that we need to be having more open and kind of yeah, right. deeper kind of con- conversations about. Yes. But we're not going to get anywhere if we if we stop talking about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously that's yeah. a, a, a pat answer to say, oh, oh we, sure. we, we need to talk, we need dialogue. But it's recurring for a reason, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Because my feeling is we also need to redefine what we mean by conversation mm. because it's a really bastardised concept and we think of it as just an exchange of words between two people Mm. when really if you look at the research in conversation therapy and narrative therapy it's actually a way of doing and being amongst like in 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 any sort of relationship so Mm. you know non-verbal cues um just it's not confined to one interaction it's Mm. it's it's a sustained interaction across a, a period of time um it's just about people, yeah, it's what people do and how they exist in a particular relationship. So mm. when we have tough conversations, it's not just an exchange of uncomfortable words. It's actually around action as it relate, like as it exists within a relationship with others. So mm. uh, would it be fair to say that maybe we need to redefine what we mean by tough conversations as well? Because mm. you need to level the playing field first in order for people to feel like they can engage in a tough conversation. Absolutely. And that, you know, there are all sorts of power differentials, aren't there? You know, gender. It's and, my conflict and, and, analyst and, hat coming yes, on, but yeah. it's, I just can't get past that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we didn't talk about the flag study. Do you want to talk about <gasps> Let's flags? Let's talk about the flag study. Okay. Because I mean, that's just. I'll let you lead that one. <laughs> okay. Well, it's it's just sort of it's just another example of the right. sort of stuff we've been talking about. And again, about. how long ago was that one? So that was well, it was it, the data was collected in the uh, Australia Day of twenty eleven. Twenty eleven. Um, and so it was kind of published and and got a lot of news covering. Yeah. It, it was the the Australia Day kind of news story. Yes. Um, you know, crazy academics Seems su- really suggest right that now. the flag is associated with racism. racism. Oh God. Yeah. Um, for 2012. Um, so yeah, it's a while ago now, and we've sort of seems like we've sort of moved, mostly moved past the flags on cars thing. Like right. it, it might have been a, a phase for a, a few years, sure. but it was really like at that stage, it was sort of one in four yeah, cars had had, flag. had flags flags on them. Um, and that was just a, again. It was it was a survey um, comparing people who put flags on their cars to people who don't mm. on a range of measures of kind of nationalism and, and particularly exclusionary nationalism. So yeah. I asked questions like, "How do you feel about particular minority groups?" Mm. Um, uh, one was a statement about you know the, the white Australia policy and whether you know Australia had been kind of saved from a lot of the problems of other countries by having mm. the white Australia policy yep. etc. And surprise surprise, the people who have flags on their cars were more negative about minorities, more positive in mm. terms of Australian nationalism about Australia, um, and and more exclusionary kind of yep. uh, generally. Um, and people got very, very upset yes. by those findings. Just the find, yeah. Because because it seemed to people as though I was saying that the Australian flag is racist. Right. And that wasn't what I was saying. Yeah. Um, 
what I was doing was reporting findings which suggest that, that, that there's a, an association, a correlation yep. between exclusionary yes. nationalism, nationalism and flag use. Yes. So the flag was coming to be it's associated. Being used as a fence exactly. Or a, or a shield. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's being used in quite, yeah, in. in um, and, and, you know, the, the, that was around the time when the flag was being used at the Cronulla riots yes. and, and at one of the Australia. The, the big day out that, you know, anyone who looked different, yep. so, you know, people who looked racially different were being forced by a gang to kiss kiss the flag, you know. So so it being used as a weapon. So the flag was in at that, you know, in, in that, that period of the sort of 2007 to, to yeah. 2010 was being used in that way. Mm. And so all that research showed was that, we were moving from perhaps from a, a more kind of multicultural version yep. of Australian nationalism to a more restrictive, exclusionary yes. version of Australian nationalism. And right. so I was just sort of asking the question when I actually wrote up the paper, you know, are, are we handing the flag to, and the flag being symbolic of mm. the Australian nation, are we handing it to the people on the, the more extreme fringes right. um, uh, in, in terms of kind of racist attitudes, right. et cetera? So, you know, when really we could be punishing people. I mean, you know, if we're talking about enforcing rights, right, like um, not that we should be punishing people, but, you know, if it was really about how we use the flag in, and how we live our values, then if multiculturalism is a value, then we shouldn't be using the flag mm. as a way to be racist or, no, you that's, know, that's and right. to be exclusionary. Yeah. So, but because that's not being policed in quite the same way, um, the underlying message is that it's okay to use the flag in that way. Mm. So if we yep. say that, if we don't, if we let people being behaving in a racist and violent way, you uh, mm. use the flag with very little uh, consequences. Yeah then the message that's being sent is that mm. the flag is okay to be used in that way when yeah. it's not okay to be used in another way. Uh, you know, I think of the Australia Day billboard uh, where it was two young women, one of them had an Australia Day flag as uh, she, it had yes. been fashioned into a hijab. Yes, that's and right. And that stoked yeah. a lot of discussion. Yeah. And, you know, like for, you know, like it's just amazing what that revealed about what people saw mm. in that image, which wasn't a violent image, but because of all the subtext apparently that it represented for certain people based on what they believed, mm. um, that was a really revealing insight. Mm. Um, I guess just I guess just as a way to sort of start to wrap up, because um, we've talked about this pendulum a bit mm. about sort mm. of from the sort of the outward global focus to the more inward preservationist quote unquote focus. What does that say about the people in those societies? You know, democratic institutions being as they are, if we take them as like, okay, there's no corruption we can identify in terms of our electoral processes and, you know, no steal, vote stealing or anything like that. What does that say about the people voting for these institutions, I guess? What does it say about how society lives together at the moment if we're swinging between these poles in very... Mm short amount of time. Do you, can you observe anything at that social level, what that says? Well, I, I think it's partly what we've been talking about in terms of the need for kind of more dialogue. And I, I fear that the way our democratic system has evolved mm. with the kind of the two-party system, yep. um, 
and and you know we've seen this in in the US where in some ways they they've sort of centralized in terms of kind of economic policy and and so on but social policy right. is is sort of becoming more bifurcated yeah, right. and and we have seen you know again some researchers have tracked the way for example John Howard mm. um you know we we can say what we like about his political rhetoric sure. but he actually instituted all of Pauline Hanson's platform. So he recognised that he had lost 10% of his vote to Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party right. way back when. Um, and so he just quietly instituted all of her policies mm. so that that constituency would come back yeah. to voting for right. for the Libs. Um, and so so if the, the centre-right party is kind of directing its gay, you know, because there's very little, you know, there's about 50% of the population that votes for each side, yeah. right? So it's the people on the on the fringes, the fringes that these political parties are having to kind of... Court. Uh, yes, court, court exactly. Um, then then that can be a dangerous a dangerous thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, so so how do we move beyond that? We, we need a, a less kind of antagonistic system of, of, right. of government. A less um, team sport oriented less system. Less team sport, yeah. So more, you know, the team sport is okay if you're all on the same team. Sure. Like, like the, the, there oh, needs sure. to be opportunities yeah, for um, kind of mediated discussions. And healthy competition, like competition of genuine ideas. Like yes, competition exactly. Competition of genuine merit. Exactly. Yeah. And then, con- you know, concession. Like, yeah. like nowadays... Political parties just don't concede right. to each other, mm. um, and yeah, so so that's what. Or it's not really picked up in news, like you know, no, it's all that's the stuff true, that happens actually. in Question Time, or yeah. you know, where they're like, "Yep, yeah, all good," like you know, everyone in the chamber votes for something, or like, but you don't really hear about that stuff. No, that's but right. that fact is covered a lot. Yeah, that we don't hear. You know, that that's something that's repeated in media that mm. we don't hear about this stuff. Yeah. We don't hear about this stuff enough. Well, 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 tell you're, us. You're the ones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're the ones you're in charge of telling on yourselves. Us. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Anyway, yeah. that's by the by. But then you know, and, th- and that also kind of leads to a recognition of the um, the importance of having a, a, a free press. Yeah. And the oh, Australian yeah. situation is is interesting. Very problematic. Yeah. Um, so that we don't, yeah, we don't, and, and then and then people um, kind of revert to kind of online media sources sure. because they're not trusting the the kind of the mainstream sources. But mm. those online sources, people end up in in their own echo chamber, kind of fi- finding the sorts of news that speaks to them, yes. which again mitigates against the the opportunity to engage in in a in a dialogue, in a dialogue. across across those differences. And you know, there's a bit of a uh, like a. It's interesting that question and probably the subject for another whole <laughs> other discussion. But just as a, a thought to throw out there, um, you know, when I teach at uni, I teach terrorism and in extremist violence. Well, I teach about it. I don't teach, <laughs> I don't teach my <laughs> students. But um, <laughs> um, one experiment I like to play on them is just I, I, I sourced a, a graph, like a XY sort of graph which maps – oh, actually, it's more of a Cartesian plane, like, you know, the X and Y axis mm. and it's the cross. Um, you know, on the X axis, you've got sort of political ideology and on the Y axis, you've got um, journalistic rigour. And someone has done a mapping exercise where they've looked at Australian media and just plotted the different sources along it. Mm. Might not be perfect, but it's kind of like it's generally in the ballpark of right. So I'll say to my students, okay, here's this map. I want you to choose the three that you – 
oh. regularly? Like, oh, I'll ask the question first. How many news sources do you yes. consult yeah. for your information? The average is always between three to four, like across the three different classes I've run this with. I'm like, okay, can you pick out which of those three on here or write in where you think your third or second mm. one is? Where on this graph they fall? So they'll do that and then I'll be like, okay, what do you notice? I'll be like, well, it's all around the center. And they'll be like, okay. But have you also noticed how close those sources are to each other? Right. And quite often, almost without fail, there's always exceptions, obviously, but the sources they identify are not only like they're in clusters rather than spread along this spectrum. And I find that really interesting. So it's like, you're corroborating, you're triangulating your information on mm. source media that is very close to each yeah, other. Yeah. What what effect do you think that has on your worldview, even for the stuff you're not actively consuming? Just mm. to see the same thing written about by three different media outlets probably has an effect. It probably consolidates knowledge because yeah, you're like, well, they're all reporting the same thing, therefore this. Mm. But then if you want to venture to those extreme sites, it can come at quite a emotional cost and uh, you know as a researcher in extremism like I have to check mm. that effect so you know to to go visit I say okay cool I want to go look at what the other side and I hate saying that but you know trying to look at the other sides of the spectrum let's see what they're writing the amount of crap in terms of racist homophobic yeah. um, just hateful bad faith sort of stuff that you have to wade through in order to even just understand some of the more moderate stuff is huge. Mm. So it becomes really undesirable to even do that um, just based on the fact that I'm going to have to wade through a lot of racist, sexist, homophobic crap in order for me to just try and get an understanding. Mm. If they're okay with that or if they're not dealing with that, then they must be okay with it. So can you see what I'm getting mm, at here yeah, where it's sure. like, to, to have a healthy, robust discussion sometimes. And, you know, if you're on the other side of a spectrum and you think that being progressive and, you know, being, what's the word that's used, you know, sort of... Bleeding heart liberal. Bleeding heart liberal, mm. social justice warrior. If you find mm. that sort of stuff offensive, yeah. like regardless of what you think, if, if that makes people upset on that side, then they're going to be less inclined to sort of engage with some of the other stuff that's being mm. said as well and what the truth is. So it's a really interesting tension I've noticed in terms mm. of trying to augment our worldview using media. So I think the role of media in how we look at post-nationhood is really important because yes. to access the possibilities, you have to wade through a lot of things that will really upset you, mm. perhaps even traumatise you if, if you're just really, if you're looking at it all the time. And so do you have any, I mean, and this is just putting you on the spot, but do you have mm. any thoughts on how to bridge ideological divides whilst protecting ourselves? Mm. It's, it's a good question. There's some research by um, Anne Peterson and, and colleagues which looks at, at anti-racism and, and the ways in which, you know, the, the sorts of strategies that work, yeah. the sorts of arguments that work, you know, the provision of facts and right. the development, you know, um, of, of empathy and the, the use of emotion, etc. And, and we, we wrote a paper, actually, Anne and I, to, mm. together um, looking at how uh, people, we, we called it diablogging, diablogging right. about, about asylum seekers. Diablogging, that's great. Um, because uh, it was, 
it w- and it was just one one um, blog discussion that was responses to an article in the Australian by Philip Adams, mm. um, and you had these sort of people on the you know, like it, it divided almost equally in terms of kind of a hundred posts, fifty were kind of pro and fifty were anti. Yep. But they were doing this dialogue. They, they were actually talking to each other. Now, there's no way of knowing whether mm. anybody's position kind of changed at right. the end of it. But I think we're, that what, what you need are opportunities for that interaction right. and for... So it comes the, down to the, the social, right? Yeah. So so going and looking at kind of, um, what's the word, kind of a, a still we, we, that, website, yeah. yeah, the loudest yeah, voice sure. on a still and website. it's static, isn't it? Yeah, static, um, as opposed to an interactional kind of opportunity um, is is a, a better way of protecting it, and and you might like there was a lot of name calling from mm. that side, which was really interesting. Right. Whereas the the people the, the pro asylum seekers were tended not to use name calling as right. much, but they did um, they tended to use the provision of, of facts. So so they which they, they actually elitism, doesn't it? it well, yeah, yeah, ab- yeah. Abs- absolutely, yeah. and. Um, you wonder whether you know are, are facts actually going to to convince people, yeah. or would some sort of recognition of emotion, such as you know, I recognise that you feel threatened yes. by the, what what you see as a challenge to your to your culture, or right. your, a challenge to your you know to the economy yeah. of you know migrants buying up houses, or yeah. you know whatever. So so that attempt at kind of empathy might actually work. Yeah. And some of the research right. suggests it that goes a lot further, r- further it? than than the provision of facts. You know that there is no queue. You know they're not queue jumpers. You know that that sort of stuff. So really, you're talking about bringing nuance and humanizing the conversation. Yeah, absolutely, and and recognizing. I found it very interesting, Biden's um, inauguration speech yesterday. He spent a lot of time um, talking about the need for respect and for for Americans to start, you know, reacquainting themselves with the concept Mm. um, and treating other people with respect. And he said that the people who work for him in the White House and uh, and so on, um, that he will be expecting respect for, and, and for each for each of them to treat each other kind of with with respect. respect and and the point he was making was a wider point that that regardless of the attitudes the, the position that you might hold the attitudes that you might mm. have that we need to engage with each other right. with from from a position of of respect respect and I've you know I mean all of my research is mm. is on racism yeah but I'm astonished at how um, I can kind of see the perspective. I can I can understand the point of view of people. You know, when I'm interviewing them and they say, you know, I'm not racist, but da da yeah. da da. Um, that given their their circumstances, yeah. etc., given their worldview, you can actually understand why mm. they have that attitude. Yeah. So that's the point at which we have to then start the mm. conversation. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it might be sort of easier said than done. Of course. But but. Uh, but yeah, again, we're not going to get anywhere without without that. And it's better to think of these as a long form relationship rather than mm. an interaction that is designed Absolutely. to change minds. It's really because yeah. everything you said has, I feel like, has come down to the quality of the relationships we yeah. have in our everyday, yeah. and how that is either reinforced or um, supported by yeah. our governing structures, like a nation state, yeah. like a city state, whatever it is. Yeah. Whoever is responsible for protecting the rights. Uh, how they how they view out those interactions or how what opportunities they create for them to happen says a lot and people pick up on that mm. regardless of 
their ideological persuasion. Yeah, so that's right. That's cool. And that's what the research shows, that it's yeah. it's about the quality. So there's been, you know, thousands of studies done on, on this contact hypothesis or contact theory, right. which is about, you know, where you have people who are, um, you know, hold prejudices about the other group, yep. get them together. Mm. It has to be under conditions where there is kind of... Um, kind of institutional support yes. kind of for it so yep. so where there's a signal to say yep we like mm. the idea of you guys you know interacting with each other and where the relationship is uh, kind of uh, sustained yeah. and and a deeper level relationship and also letting people decide what they do with that space i guess mm. rather than assigning roles to people yeah yeah um because you know then that speaks to that fixation of control that we have yeah, where it's like if we right. can create the environments yep. but create enough opportunity for creativity mm. on how people interact with each other. Yeah. As long as there's a baseline understanding of respect for just mm. on the basis of being human, mm. then people will organise themselves, yeah. I would think. Yeah, if, yeah, if the supporting structures yeah. are strong enough. Absolutely. Yeah, great. I think that's probably a good note to wrap yeah. things up. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for a really, really thought-provoking conversation. Thank you. It's great yeah. fun. Awesome. <laughs> You have been listening to Undesign, a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.